And so it begins. No one knows its secrets. It's like nothing you've ever gone after before. You make me want to be a better man. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Watching the Right Movies with the Rinkowski Brothers, the podcast for people that enjoy mainstream movies but are looking to branch out their taste a little bit. I'm Ben, and this is my brother, Nick. Hey, Benny, how's it going? It's pretty good. I'm just recovering from the holidays, although by the time this comes out, hopefully we're all recovered. But yeah, it's pretty good. Good day to podcast. I should say so, yes. Uh, yeah, so Nick, I wanted to ask you something, which I don't think we've actually mentioned on the podcast, as you're a humble guy, mm. but you actually uh, are somehow entrusted uh, with today's youth as a professor at, a, at the August Institution of Drake University, at least every so often, to teach a class on film, aren't you? Because I'm so modest, I should say I'm an <laughs> adjunct professor, but I should also add I'm the greatest adjunct professor in the history of amateur professors. I want to qualify this. Drake... And other universities take uh, part in this program as well, but they have something called first-year seminars, which every first-year student has to take. It doesn't matter if you're 18 or 81. And they are taught by... The, the rigors are not quite as high as a regular college class, meaning that uh, myself, without an advanced degree, I don't have a graduate degree, I'm, I'm not a, a full professor, I do want to make that perfectly clear, can teach this class because I am have some expertise in the area of movies and this is the class is really more about critical thinking and learning to be a college student meaning that it doesn't feed into a film program or a film history program or really any major every these classes range from stuff like my class which is about film adaptations which is I'm assuming why you're bringing it up to classes like the ethics of Star Trek and the contemporary meaning of Game of Thrones to legitimately seriously stuff like scarcity in the third world or racism in the 21st century and stuff like that. So they range all over the place. The whole concept behind the program is that if the instructor, which is a better term for me than professor, to be quite frank, is passionate about the, the subject, so will the students. But it's a lot of fun. I do it every fall. And even this year in 2020, in which we all had to be masks, or for the most part, we're really online pretty much all the the second half of the semester it's still a lot of fun and the, the class as you are, are teeing up is about film adaptations reading the book and then watching the movie okay yeah and that's what i wanted to use to talk about what do you think because you're teaching late teens early 20s yeah kids who at least have some interest in film who i would think in some ways are the ideal listeners for our podcast hopefully you plug our podcast that's going to make us rich someday Mm -hmm. and use your adjunct professorship for ill-gotten gains correct and they all think Uh, i'm very cool so they would definitely listen to my podcast (laughs) if i brought it up i'm sure yeah it's like oh my professor's podcast (laughs) are there any words that are less cool than i'm going to listen to my professor's podcast precisely (laughs) yes Uh, and those words are hey students you should really listen to my podcast podcast yeah (laughs) so in doing uh, in teaching that what uh, is there anything that you and let's say focus on this year uh, that you feel you learned from them or that a way that they've that you've seen maybe a lot of the students look at movies that's different than what you think of. Uh, well, maybe made you think of something differently. So I've been doing this now for six years or so. It's still in my twenties. So if I'm thirty six and I think I turned thirty. <laughs> 
Uh, sorry, if I'm 36 and I turned 20, I turned 30, I think, that first year. So I was 29 when I started. 30 to 18 is 18 years old to 30 is not that big. Is a gap, of course, but we're relatively similar. There's a huge difference between you're double, I'm twice their age. So I might as well be a thousand. Uh, years old. <laughs> we don't have a similar taste in movies, and you say a lot of these students are assigned these classes. They can, some of them can pick, others, when they get filled up, they just get put in there. So it's not a guarantee that everyone has an interest in movies, um, which makes the, in 20 students per class, makes the, the, makes it tough to find common ground. The film students, the, the kids yeah. who really like it, maybe they've seen Citizen Kane, Maybe they've seen a couple things, but that's rarely true. I do a section in which I go through the the 10 most influential movies of all time, and it takes, according to me, and it takes until we've gotten into Star Wars, which is, it's all, it's by, it's by chronolo- chronology. So yeah. the first six or seven are p- pre-Star Wars. Until then, we until we get to a point where most of the class has seen it. Not even all with Star Wars anymore. So Harry Potter is a nice common ground. Hunger Games is good. But even that becomes less and less. Keep in mind, if you are a freshman in 2020, the Hunger Games came out when you were in early middle school. It's an old, it's an old movie. The same with Divergent. But that's the whole point of the way that I, I program the class they're used to, their entire thought on adaptation is a YA novel to a movie yeah. in, which it's a, in which it's a pretty good translation. There's nothing wrong with that. There are very good movies made that way, including, I think, the Harry Potter movies as adaptations. But they, and the movie I, we're about to talk about, you and could argue. The movie we're about to talk about. And so the things they read and, and watch are designed to make them realize, okay, you can have a movie that's not quite the same as the book is, that drops whole subsections or changes tone completely and still have it work, or not. They get to develop their own definition of a working adaptation, but it's not as literal as what they're used to, which is helpful, or is at least part of the idea. But every year it seems like there's less and less, and this is the effect of streaming and, and everything else, less common ground on what everyone has seen, which makes it a little bit more difficult because in the course of 16 weeks or whatever a semester is, you can only really watch and read three or four movies that we're all on the same page on. As you're using examples, you want to say, okay, it's like this, but if only two of the students have seen that, that illustration doesn't really work. Yeah. And (laughs) very, very, we've talked about that too, that, yeah, like this is not making fun of kids today. This is me feeling bad for kids today. Like, Back when we were kids, everyone saw Star Wars, you would, period. Because you had uh, the differences in one regard. It's nice that streaming services, you can these things are at your fingertips, but everything is at your fingertips. So yeah. you don't have to watch the same things and go through the same. It's not even really the same. And I also keep in mind at 18, I hadn't seen, as someone who was yeah. as interested in movies, Hadn't, hadn't seen anything, had not seen, yeah. was probably being the exact same boat as far as if those 10 movies I'm talking about, the influential movies, had probably only seen two or three of them at that age too. So it's not, again, it, most of my 
developing the right movies since took place in college and not my freshman year, but later on. It's it, right, it, it, especially for incoming freshmen, it's just hard. So it, well, I, go ahead. It's funny because I asked, although it was a good lead in that you were talking about adapting novels, because really what I was saying is, how did you sell this movie to your students and get them to watch it? I never asked them to watch this movie. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. I, w- there are, I wouldn't say anything. I'd say, here's the assignment, yeah. go do it. And then the endless <laughs> amount of complaining. One of the, we have, I think there's only one assigned movie that we've talked about on this podcast that I also go in, that we talk about in, in class, and that's The Age of Innocence. Have you read The Age of Innocence, Benny? Yeah, I think we, yeah, I've read The Age of Innocence. I have not read uh, the book we're talking about today, the but, movie of the, based on the book we're talking about today. But The Age of Innocence is a perfect adaptation in terms of a translation. It is almost yeah. scene for scene, beat for beat, and in the same style. Wharton spends so much time talking about the accoutrements, the, the forks and knives, yeah. and, and the film fetishizes those as well. And the students hate it. They just hate it. They find yeah. it to be so boring, and for the most part. So this movie, which is twice as long, or at least another hour, than The Age of yeah. Innocence, and I don't know how long the Thackeray novel is, would just be, I, I would, it would not go well. And the movie, of course, we're talking about is, I shouldn't say of course, I don't know, there's a million uh, movies that could be guessed based on what we've talked about so far, but is Barry Lyndon, Stanley Kubrick's 1975 Barry Lyndon, based on a novel by William Thackeray. And I am a little surprised that you haven't read it. Have you read Vanity Fair? I've read Vanity Fair, which is much longer. This book is only 220 pages. Oh my goodness, that's nothing. Particularly because Vanity Fair is a brick. Yeah. And yeah, so I've not, but I did after watching it, I then read basically the cliff notes of the book. And I would say that this is in the category of a translation, a, very, a good adaptation, but does not follow it beat for beat. Oh, and it makes a few changes. I, I'll mention them maybe when we talk about the plot. I'd be interested if Kubrick's, because there's a lot of voiceover in the movie, I'd be interested if that comes from the, if the narration comes from the book. The book is narrated by Barry himself, oh, okay. and he's somewhat of a he's somewhat of an unreliable narrator. Whereas he's an unreliable yes, movie, character. Yes, in in our movie, at least we have an omniscient kind of I would say even at times sassy narrator, but he yeah. does at least appear to be uh, reliable. With the exception, we'll talk about that in a second because the narrator and the narration itself is pretty interesting. But why don't you give us a recap of the film plot for Barry Lyndon? Oh man, I get to do this. Yeah, I guess sometimes I do the plot, and then you can tell us when it was, when it was made and other stuff about it. Yeah, so Barry Lyndon is basically about this horrible dude who rises up the ranks of European society in the 18th century. Uh, is the is yeah, my short way of saying it. All right, he's this poor kid in Ireland gets enlisted enlists in the in the army, is a hothead, but then lucks out sometimes, goes through European society. Marries a woman who he's horrible to yeah. <laughs> just for her money. And then so you, the first act is him rising up. The second act is him, then his downfall, uh, which is a lot due to his stepson, who he deserve, who he does not <laughs> have any love for. They deserve each other. Yes. Yeah, so it's not quite frankly. His stepson is also Hor- is horrible. A, correct. But... <laughs> but so then and then Barry fall, runs through all of his money is ruining himself anyway and then loses his leg in a duel <laughs> yes. uh, with said stepson near the very end of the movie which 
does not occur in the book, by the way. That to me was the oh, biggest. Oh, yeah. Uh, it's much less climactic, kind of the downfall in the book, as you can imagine. Interesting, uh, because the movie yeah. begins with a duel. Barry's yeah. father is killed in the duel and then ends with yeah. a duel and Barry himself yeah, it, not killed, but uh, maimed yeah. certainly and is back yeah. where he, and I think isn't the book called the luck of, of Barry Lyndon yes. or something to that effect. So it yeah. is all luck. He's such a yeah. dislikable character because he's not even really all that active. It'd be one thing to see a guy, even an evil person like working towards his aims. He yeah. just stumbles into these situations yes. and has a lizard brain enough to take advantage isn't quite the right word, but to not foul up until he stops, yes, he, until he does. He just compulsively lies and compulsively wants to rise up in the ranks. And sometimes his lies work. And sometimes the guy he's lying to is dude, come on. Right. <laughs> I can see <laughs> that you're Irish or whatever. Right. Yeah. So it's not that he's skilled. It's not one of those, British game of cards or, wow, this guy's evil, but look at his diabolical plan. He uh, has <laughs> no sense of subterfuge. He cannot, no. best exemplary or I, uh, underlined by when he's asked to spy on this potential yeah. <laughs> uh, criminal, he tells the criminal right off the bat for no good reason <laughs> that he's spying on him and turns... Yeah, within, within two seconds. Right. He's the worst spy ever. <laughs> turns on his employers and then when he can the only the thing he fails most spectacular at is the thing that does require some sense of strategy or 3d chess which is to get himself a title he's married into money but he's only he's not privy to it she's totally in charge of it when the push comes to shove and so he he tries to become a lord and he can't do it he, he, he doesn't even yeah. come close to doing it uh, i think he was on his way until he beat up his stepson right. in front of everybody that certainly derailed it but who knows if he was on his way i mean right. he, he shares that brief scene with king george and yeah. he's done everything right in terms of raising an army to, to beat the brit to beat the americans and on but he doesn't make an impression he he doesn't have that he has no uh, he he's just not going to ingratiate himself into society because he is a horse's ass and an idiot <laughs> and yeah. and unlikable. It's hard but, to say that because but he is a brave he is a brave idiot. You have to give him that that he's very brave. Uh, he uh, will he will and he's a pretty good duelist. He, uh, he the rule by the way the rules for the duel changes every time. Every in, every uh, duel is somehow differently done. Yeah, like I needed Hamilton ten duel commandments to explain <laughs> every time how they were doing the rules because they just changed and everyone seemed to know that the rules were changed from the last time he did it. They go through it, oh, yeah, because the first duel they shoot at the same time, and his first yes. duel I think they shoot at the same time, and then, of course, they yes. take turns in the last, in the the, last, the last duel. duel. And one of the duels is with swords. Yes. That's so explanatory how it's different. All of which he... And then, yeah, but why... He, you call him a hothead. He gets in trouble in the army for such a... Because some guy <laughs> just tells him to punch the biggest guy in the... He's like, hey, you going to let him get away with that? Just call him a this and a that. It, it, he doesn't, there's no sense of why. No, his, his dumbest thing is early on, he's in love with his cousin. Yes. Okay, who flirts with him hardcore, but thinks of him as a boy and is going right. to marry some British officer. And Barry is just like the weird, you can just see that the, as to the British officer, he's just the weird cousin who's infatuated right. with his wife, who just will not let it go, who continually is, I'm going to, I'm going to duel you. I want satisfaction. 
throws and, the wine in his face. Let it go, man. She's and, just not that into you. And, and she's your cousin. And the family knows enough to yes. set him up, to make it a yeah. fake, to yeah. the duel to itself, not, which not he wins. Make, he, yeah. Because, uh, yeah, so they're berry-proofing the whole situation. Yeah. So here you end... <laughs> You spend three hours with this guy. He's practically in every scene. And you wanted some the yeah. context for the movie. He's played by Ryan O'Neill, who was thought of, and still is by and large, as a sort of wooden, stuffed shirt pretty boy. Uh, That's what I thought. I only think of him as Love Story. Love Story, right. The small T movie from the 70s that gave us the worst the movie line of all time, which is love does, means never saying that you're sorry. Never no, never having you're sorry all the time. Attend, right. <laughs> you have to constantly, to remain in love, if you're not apologizing, it's not going to last very long. Anyway, so yeah, that's, <laughs> but anyway that, that's what I thought of him. I was like, really him? But I, I'll be honest, I think he's great in he's it. He's great in it. He's great in it. And the, you and I are now expressing a minority opinion. I mean, he was absolutely lambasted and remains so because he is wooden and he is just a sort of petulant wine face the entire time yes. but that's the but, po- i guess to me that's the point right that's i, I don't think want to root for him i never at any correct. point do i root for this guy I, that's the he's way great. <laughs> yeah i believe that's the way he's been directed and he pulls it off i think somebody else with a more interesting he's also really just one or two dimensional so it's not he doesn't need to have a whole bunch of depth again i don't know and i also think Again, I don't know if that you cast the actor knowing his limitations, and you can make those limitations into a strength. And if you think it's easy to play stupid, it's a certainly not. But then also, I think he does ride this sort of line of you can believe it when some people are taken in by him enough because yeah. he is handsome and he doesn't say anything, so people yeah. kind of project like they do with their pets. A little uh, a personality <laughs> onto him, but then other people can see th- straight through it. Uh, it does work in, in that way, and of course, it's not like anybody else is really all that effusive. His wife is pretty muted. The only and the movie itself, which is a beautiful, it just looks great, but it's so cold. It's completely impassionate about what's happening in the middle, of, and everybody is. That last shot when she signs his last check to him. Yeah. She thinks she stops for a second to be like, oh, I spent 15 years with this person and some tragic stuff happened between two of us. Moving on. <laughs> it, it just, it, I know he, it's... He, he beat up my son. Beat up my son. <laughs> and, and that's the only, <laughs> the only yeah. scene, right, we'll talk about the tragedy later, but the only scene in which there's some genuine in the moment emotion is that scene in which yeah. he gets up and beats the hell out of his son, uh, his son-in-law when he's calling him out. And you don't know exactly who to root for because they're both in the the son-in-law is this sniveling and is even less principled as shown out in the final duel in which Barry does act a gentleman or at least and the... And he certainly is brave and then has sympathy by not shooting him. And the the son-in-law who has missed his first shot... Uh, After vomiting, misfiled. Let's not his mis- right. He misfired yeah. and then lost his <laughs> and lost his dignity by 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 vomiting. He he is given an olive branch and decides to shoot the olive branch. Literally, <laughs> fire at the olive branch. So it's a, again, there's no real likable characters in here, and it's but 
and I guess we'll get to like your overall thoughts on it, but I, what I know it's based on a 19th century, pardon me. Yeah. A 19th century novel. Uh, It's set in the 18th century and it, and the the 19th century novels are totally different form. Made in the 20th century. And the 19th century novels, it's a form unto itself, but it reminds me of Candide. It has this sort of really caustic, almost satirical humor but just what a garbage human this person is. Well, and the point, and it's not just him, everyone. There's right. no one that you root for, really. And when I you know, told Julie I'm watching a three-hour yeah. movie that takes place in the 18th century, she's like, okay. And then I was like, it's about a horrible person. She's like, does anyone have redeeming qualities? And I was like, not really. I was like, not who's alive wife, at the end. Like, And the wife doesn't really have... Any qu- the only quality she has could be put upon. You feel bad for her, but she doesn't at any point make you root for her. You just feel bad that she you know, is being used by Barry, so obviously. And, right. But she doesn't really get to do anything. <laughs> and, the, and I think the point of the novel, which was Thackeray's whole thing, and what Vanity Fair is about, is everyone's awful. Society's rich people are awful. They're just trying to get richer and show each other off in society in air quotes and mm-hmm. it's all a big sham and it's all garbage <laughs> and it's wasted and it's wasting money on lavish birthday parties for your son where he gets to ride in a pretty cool cart and everyone deserves to burn is basically i think factory's whole worldview and to some degree kubrick's por- as about to say and he's me. he's found his perfect if kubrick it's hard to identify a single theme throughout his work, but certainly one is that systems set up by humans are almost invariably undermined by the fickleness of humanity. You know, most in Dr. Strange love, of course, this idea of mutual destruction between nuclear powers is totally becomes a logical nightmare for actual human beings who can put that sort of thing in in into practice in the in full metal jacket it's the military that can't is supposed to make doesn't have room to care about the individuals within the system which is a, a little bit true about uh, paths of glory which we talked about in this uh, podcast of course as well and then i can probably think of other examples as well but in this one you've he's found the whole society to be just dumb. A lot of this is yeah. just how dumb the whole thing yeah. <laughs> is from the dual. I mean, how does how anything, pointless. Does anything, does anything scream dumber than men with white powder all over their faces well, and powdered wigs? Does there's anything that, scream to you how yes, dumb this whole thing is? <laughs> yes, and it's a different part of the movie in which two armies march at each other and just fire on each other in lines and just keep marching <laughs> <Yeah>. until there's. <laughs> I think there's this subtle idea of. The just the the foibles of humanity. What is what a why? It doesn't matter what type of duel. It's dumb. It's senseless. And for what? A stupid vanity or not? And anyway, it, it's a, a, he's found the the perfect collaborator, Thackeray and and Kubrick, because most of his movies, there there is a distance from the human characters, including, of course, in 2001. The most interesting character in 2001 is not a human at all. Uh, and <laughs> also works within that that idea I was talking about of a system that has undermined Hal's logic, of course, would lead to where that movie leads. And this, we do get a human protagonist who's at the center of it, and yet the movie is still totally disinterested 
and and dispassionately watching the the foolishness and the rolling in the mud and all that kind of thing. It's I don't know. It's one of the weird alchemies, and, and we'll talk about what you thought of it, but of why it works when if on the page or or in concept, it's. I'm not surprised that Julie was like, yeah, I want no part of that. <laughs> yeah. And so just to pause, although I assume people listening to this know who Stanley Kubrick is, although if you only listen to our podcast, you'd think, oh, he directed Paths of Glory <laughs> and Barry Lyndon, even though this is, I don't know, I can't remember if you put him in your Mount Rushmore, but easily exactly. top 10 director of all time. Oh, sure. Yeah. Most be- probably pop- top five. I mean, he directed 2001, directed Spartacus, although he has disowned that one. Uh, uh, which I directed, love Spartacus. Dir- We'll directed Clockwork Orange right before this. That yeah. was the movie he did before. This is Clockwork Orange, one of the most famously violent movies there is. The next movie he, re- he directs after this is... Uh, would it have to... Oh, The Shining, sure. The Shining. Again, like, it's fun. I, I enjoy that on our podcast we've chosen these movies with him because, again, you could argue that Stanley Kubrick directed the greatest horror movie of all time, yeah. the greatest sci-fi movie of all yeah. time, maybe the greatest historical epic of all time in Spartacus. And if you depending on how you think of Dr. Strangelove, the greatest comedy of all time right. or the greatest war movie of all time yeah. in, in Full Metal Jacket. And then he directed this, he decided, I'm going to direct three hours of, of Prussians and mm-hmm. <laughs> British people wearing wigs. And you could see why this didn't, wasn't beloved in America, although it did do well in France, I, oh, sure. I learned after reading <laughs> about it. But so, again, I'm going and watching it. And of course, I do think of Age of Innocence, The again, also the... I'd say deep cut of Martin Scorsese that we've listened to that we've talked about on this podcast and no shocker after re- I obviously Martin Scorsese thinks this is Stanley Kubrick's greatest movie. Oh, you looked that up, did you? That's interesting. Yeah. It is. Uh, it, and I, I mean, won't it, go it, that far, but I think it's his third best after strange love in 2001 in some order of that, but it is definitely not his most famous compared to full metal jacket, oh. the shining, and a clock. Eyes Wide Shut is more famous than this. Oh, absolutely. For, I feel like different reasons. But sure. Anyway, but so I go and watch it. And I'm like, and I am shocked by how, as you mentioned already, how beautiful it is. Man, yeah. it looks good. And uh, a lot of those, I, I've not been able to confirm. I'm sure there will be nerds screaming. But a lot of it was shot with natural light, including the candlelight. I don't know about all yes. of it. But a lot of the interiors were shot just lit by camera, by the candles. And I know that they created special lenses for that kind of thing. And normally I would be like... NASA created those lenses, <laughs> Oh, <the> <laughs> look at that. Uh, and normally, you know, I don't know if that's totally necessary. It's one thing right. if you do something like that, say with Boyhood, where you watch the... You, you yeah. shoot it over 13 years... You know, that there is a continuity there. This seems, let's make this, let's do, let's do this in an old way just because it's harder. But it does look, the flicker of it, they they get it just right. And I think you, more than you do in movies of this era, set in this era, a sense of how dark, how much light you need, how many candles you need every night to light a room. Subtly understanding the difference between the haves and the have-nots in terms of how how precious money is to just be able to see in the evening. It takes yeah. huge candelabras all over the place just so you can see in the background and other places like that. I think it works. It certainly is a beautiful movie. Well, and it's funny because, yeah, I read things that people talk about the candlelight, which is impressive to me, but I was more struck by just, and it's mainly Ireland, by the yeah, way. the exteriors. A, but just the battle scene, the countryside, the states that they're in it just looks awesome yeah, it does. So you, i could see how in the 70s that would be some even you know more impressive 
I think at the time. It's, and but and I wanted to ask you because you already mentioned what I also saw in a lot of the things I read afterward that is the that is it's beautiful but dispassionate like and that and so how I guess I would say I didn't I got it dispassionate in that I didn't care about anybody <laughs> but how does he make how does he use the camera you mentioned it like how is it that the camera makes it seem dispassionate like, what well, you look at is it because he's not zooming in or what is it that could have that he's doing that purposely is to make it less let's use it's not passionate but whatever right let's use <laughs> a, another example from his career if you look at 2001 and compare it to star wars so they're 10 years apart but they both take place in space one feels and one maybe this is because it's uh, 2001 you could correct me on this it's certainly much harder science fiction than star wars would be but you get a sense of when you're in the Millennium Falcon, you don't get a sense of the coldness of space the way you do when you're on that little treadmill in, in 2001 or whatever the space, whatever the name of the spaceship is, I don't remember now. The way the camera just keeps its distance, I guess that's the best way to put it. A okay. lot of the shots are wide in Barry London, including that first, I mean, just take yeah. the first shot of the duel yeah, of, of the Barry's duel. father. Yeah. You're, you don't feel like you're observing, like you're there. You feel like you're seeing every frame is a different painting of a still, yeah. a still shot. And so it, it compare that to, oh, I'm just trying to think of a, a contemporary, a literal contemporary of 1975 of Jaws, where the movie, the camera's moving a lot. You feel like you're on the, you're on the ship yeah. with the the cameras in between people who are talking. Some of it's handheld. That's it's the camera's way of commenting on what's happening. Again, we can argue about what it's commenting on, but when you lock a camera down and you get a safe distance, even when Barry lunges at his son-in-law in the the packed gallery, yeah. the camera still is. Can you believe that this is happening? It's a it's artistic way of almost shooting like close camera TV security footage. It, it's even, again, looking at Age of Innocence, where you've got close-ups on, on material. There, there are things that you're, the camera's bringing you in there, making you a part of the, a part of the action, such as there is action in that movie. Scorsese, in his strategy for Age of Innocence, would have shot that scene with the cousin, the early scene with the cousin, in which she does indeed invite him to grope her totally <laughs> different because you're yeah. the, the camera is sitting at the other end of the table and is i don't like being here i hate this this is this is uncomfortable and i wish these two would these, stop these are cousins correct i wish these two <laughs> would stop really doing this way. right it doesn't cut in it doesn't we don't get a close-up of what he's thinking we don't get a close of what she's thinking we've got a two shot that doesn't change and i don't just mean that long shots it's, it's everything it's the yeah. entire visual strategy of being far away and yeah. distancing there's just this arm length always and i'm saying that i'm sure there are close-ups in very London as there are in other parts of Kubrick, yeah. but it doesn't have the same beat and pattern of establishing shot, medium shot, close up. Yeah. It doesn't have the Coen Brothers interior 
you know, the Coen brothers have two people talk at a table. The camera's in between the two of them, always. Yeah. Uh, when Doug Lyman, or I think it's Doug Lyman, the born identity guy, he's going to shoot things over the shoulder so you feel like you're listening in. That's None of that's here. It's all just cold, far away. You're there, but you're almost there in a certain sense against your will. And I, again, it, it's a kind of magic. I don't know how you do that. People smarter than me, people in the business know how to make that feeling... I can respond to it once it's done. I don't know how you draw that out and storyboard that out to be like, I know this will make the, what separates a great visual genius. And I'm, I'm giving it to Kubrick. Of course, there's a, a cinematographer involved here. But yeah. is how you figure all that out before the cameras roll to know that once you had the footage, it creates that effect. Because it is yeah. tricky. And it, it's not something that's easily defined. Yeah, and I, I think you actually the, it click when you said it's like a painting because it does feel like, 18th century paintings you're just watching paintings all the time yeah and, I, and again i think it makes sense because again we don't like these people so it's like we want to stay distant and as you said and as like kubrick's all over the map in terms of the movies he makes but i do think this kind of overriding lack of faith in human created yes. institutions including 2001 is the old 2001 is the ultimate one of that we're so messed up, we need a higher alien higher power alien, right. to show us how to go to the next level. Correct. I think, by the, I think it's Discovery One is the name of that spaceship, okay. by the way. Thank you. And, yeah, Doug Lyman directed the first Bourne movie, but then it was like Paul Greengrass. Greengrass. Really Paul Greengrass is the one I'm He about. took it to the next level. Yeah. Uh, of the sh- sh- and then everyone copied him for a while, and it was annoying. <laughs> right. <laughs> of the shaky, the shaky camera. Yeah. Yeah. So, but they also listen to the music... The music is period appropriate for the most part, but, and for the most part, the number one thing you hear is a handle piece that's throughout the entire thing. uh, It sounded to me like it wanted to be the Imperial March from Star Wars. At least that's what it was in my head. Sure. (laughs) And it it seemed appropriate since everyone's evil. But it has this sort of funereal feel to it. And yes. there's, but there, it's not joyous. It's not no. uplifting. And there are plenty of pieces from that era that you could that are passionate, including yeah. by Handel. But the way he uses classical music, which of course he did in two thousand one, and he does here, yeah. is the other uh, piece that's played a couple times is a piano trio by Schubert, which is not period appropriate. It would have been seventy or eighty years later. But it's perfect. It's done. Yeah. And it's, but it's this cold, icy, the piano notes feel like little drops of ice. And that's a totally different feel than, you know, a Mozart overture or even an early Beethoven something or other, which would again been less period appropriate. But I'm saying it add, continues to add to this sort of frigidity that uh, permeates throughout. It's just, uh, again, it's everything. It's what the French would call maison sainte. They would actually probably pronounce it correctly in French when they say it, but it's a combination of everything on the screen that creates this idea that this is just a cold, bereft place of human goodness and even brings into question the existence of human goodness. Yeah, exactly. And it's funny. Uh, let's talk about- I think it's funny anyway. There's definitely funny parts. I do the Prussian guy. Yeah. Who he's, after he, he saves, again, Barry saves this Prussian dude's life who already knows that Barry's a con artist. Right. But he has to give him a medal for saving his life. And he has a, a great line of, here's your medal, but idle and bad influence. You're idle man, you're a bad influence, and I'm sure you will come to no good. <laughs> and here's your medal for saving my life. 
And yeah, so then you t- mentioned the narrator because I again I feel like the narrator yeah. sometimes you know will mention things that are about to happen. So like he says, Barry was a good father, uh, but he's not going to get to see his, his son's going to die. Oh, right. and here comes oh, and and then we see his son ask for a horse. So everyone who's watched the movie knows immediately that horse is not going to be good. You're correct, uh, and it is a tragedy. And, and maybe you're right. It's supposed to be dispassionate, and maybe it's just because I have kids now. I cannot handle little kids dying in movies. And oh. it's, it's, yeah, it's not. Like, <laughs> I, it's not like I love that. It, yeah. it is that is the, the most emotional. Yeah. You do feel bad for the parents, of course, and for the kid, and, and for the kid. Know. Yeah, and that is a terrible thing. Uh, but it's in it. But look at how different that is than say a very similar situation in Gone with the Wind. The two of them. It, it obviously affects them both, but not together as a couple. It's not like it, it just a, yeah. a weird way. And of course it is awful. And is that part of the book? Is that in the book? Yes. Yeah. And in the book, then basically what it's, it must be more, it's more subtle that Lord Bullington, the, his garbage yeah, stepson correct. goes off to war in America Oh. But everyone then assumes Barry sent him there to get killed, and that's oh. like his downfall, you know, which is oh, not as dramatic as a duel. I still do think that his downfall starts once he sends money to conquer the Americans, so that's what he gets. The church. Ah, I see. <laughs> yes, by being, a, I think that's the message. That's the message that I see. Mess, mess with the USA, and you're going down, buddy. Yeah. yeah. All right. Uh, so here's my question for you: Who gets the award? Who is the worst person in this movie? <laughs> Oh, man. <laughs> I'm going to go with... I'm going to go with Lord Bullington because <laughs> he has all the problems that Barry does <laughs> but is even more... I guess it's nice that he gives him the money. And they, they come up... Again, it's such yeah. a ridiculous... Yeah. But he's just a... He's a brat. Yeah. And but at the same time a victim. He is a victim. And he was of, right. He's the only one who sees through Barry from the beginning. Yes. As a kid. He's I'm on to you. <laughs> I'm on to you. You're replacing my dad. My mom's replaced my dad. But he is such a piece of crap at the in the duel and loses his dignity. That's the one small arc for I don't know if young Barry would have given away his shot out of honor like uh, that. Yeah. And so that is this sort of moment. And he's also then right to get shot. It's a weird, it's a yeah. strange, there's no one really to root for to be like, this is 100% correct or 100% incorrect. I'm going to change it. It's Barry Lyndon. It's Redmond yeah. Barry, <laughs> Barry Lyndon, who is not only a traitor to his country, but is to anyone a, he's to ever trusted. Anyone who ever, tra- he's just a worm of the worst caliber. And I find it hard to believe that Lord Bullington would be the piece of garbage he would be if not having come in contact with Barry Lyndon. It's true. So it has to yeah. be Barry Lyndon. Yeah. Uh, no, I'm going to Dark Horse t- with the chaplain. Oh, the chaplain <laughs> the is a snake. Sni- the, the sniveling chaplain yeah. who's always around the lady Lyndon. Yes. How, why, does, why, does he let, why does he allow Barry to marry him? He knows what's going on. Yeah, it's a good uh, point. And he's just super smug all the time. He serves no purpose. It's, <laughs> you're right about all of just, this. He's just a piece of trash. Uh, like so he's it. my dark horse, worst person in the movie, and has no redeeming qualities. <laughs> Made worse uh, that he's representing the claw. That's, it's not just it's yes, one thing exactly. to be. And, but yeah, he's, he is a man of the, the faith, supposedly. Right. Exactly. The, the hypocrisy. So that's why I add on to him, that he actually has, uh, he has a title that he... 
I don't know what he does with it. Right. He's not a, he's the one who should be looking out for Lord Bullington, which he doesn't. Mm-hmm. He tells him, no, Barry's fine. When he has to know he's not. Yeah. And let's be real. Both Barry, Lord Bullington, and the chaplain have extremely punchable faces. Oh, the casting is great in terms <laughs> yeah. of punchability. It's true. He looks like, Bullington looks like punchable Mick Jagger. And if you took Klaus Kinski, <laughs> yeah. who we've talked about, from Aguirre, the Wrath of God, yeah, yeah. and combined them with Mick Jagger, and then up the, the punchability by a thousand... Yeah. You'd have Lord Bullington. I feel bad because this guy's probably listening to the podcast, and this, he was like, "I was good in that movie. I was told to be punchable. I can't believe they're just making, uh, can't believe they're making fun of my face." By the way, I guess I don't know the whole story, but I guess he was then Kubrick's assistant from all his movies oh, after this. Okay, uh, so he had a little yeah. career out of and it. This is one of the only things he was in uh, that he acted in, but yeah, he does know. a good job. Speaking yeah. of uh, small parts, did you notice? I'm trying to. I'm going to do this all season, one season, but I'm trying to include a a marginal Bond character in each of these movies. It's funny you say that because I just thought of that with the movie we're going to do next week, which is a very obvious Bond connection. But almost every movie, particularly the English ones, I can make a Bond connection. I was like, you know what? I could probably make a Bond. There's probably at least an actor that's been in a Bond movie that's been in all the movies we've done. I probably yeah. could do a segment that would at least be fun just for us <laughs> right. to talk about. But I don't think I noticed in this one. I've noticed it in other ones, some pretty obscure ones. That only. But what about in this one? One of the foppish gamblers, and I got to be more. Um, I'm gonna have yeah. to be more specific than that. <laughs> is Orloff from Octopussy the gentleman with the uh, the big mole uh, in the middle of his forehead? You know what I'm talking about? Yes, I do. It's, Although everyone in this movie has a fake mole. Right, uh, but including he puts a fake mole yeah. on the mole in his forehead. It's a little funny yes. thing. Yeah, no, I did. I now I, I that's now clicked for me. Yes, <laughs> and I believe the guy who gets his face melted in Raiders of the Lost Ark is a foppish gambler. Not, really, the sort looks... of the square jawed guy, but, know, um, he... not the guy with the glasses, but yeah. uh, but uh, one of one of the Nazis is definitely maybe. one of uh, okay, is I a know Prussian gambler. I don't. It's not oh. maybe. I looked it up. The one who duels it. Yeah, or... with the swords. Yes. Yes. Which, by the way, that's the coolest thing Barry does. He stabs oh, sure. him behind the back. Yeah, it's that's pretty, pretty cool. <laughs> so I think My you last just... comment for something. Oh, there you go. No, well, I think that just gave the chaplain the edge because he can't do that. Yeah. So he's definitely yeah. the worst character. Yeah, the behind the back. I was like, was that right. real? Isn't? <laughs> would they really do something behind the back in the eighteen in the seventeen hundreds? No, I did also enjoy in the duel the John Woo action movie doves they're flying around. oh yeah absolutely <laughs> okay tw- tw- 20 years before john woo correct sweet. yeah those are two directors i would uh, never put together but there you go yeah <laughs> and then probably the line of the movie for me that's just a good line from his mom who also at first you think oh his mom's okay no his mom's no. also the worst yes she Conniving. says something like money well timed and properly applied can do anything yeah that's a pretty pretty good <laughs> And then the epilogue is just a final burn of essentially it ends with they're all equal now because this happened in the 1700s. It's basically none of it mattered. Correct. Because they're all dead. Because right. <laughs> we're all dead now. You're, you can't take it with you. And yeah. in Barry's case, he, he how would he know? Because he didn't have any at the end anyway. Yes, yeah. it's, it's pretty good. Anyway, what did you think, though? You've not really – we've mentioned why it shouldn't work. Did it work for you? I did like it more than Age of Innocence, even though it's much longer. Wow. And I generally like Scorsese more than 
Yeah, I would think. I mean, and Cooper, and it is three hours of just horrible people, <laughs> which is not my really how I like to spend my time. And I feel like I was a worse person uh, over All the holidays because I was. Oh <laughs> sure. I was watching it, but as we've talked, I I did like lots of I liked lots of it. It just was a lot of, you know, the horrible humans doing things for three hours. So I, I don't know. I think I I gotta go. I guess I gotta go wrong movie. I guess I should oh. say pick almost any other Kubrick movie and you'll be satisfied. Oh <laughs> man! Wow. There you go. There's my last minute turn Shoot. on you, a la Barry. A la Barry. Yeah. So for my top five here, just because I think this applied to Vanity Fair, but Thackeray also wanted to apply it to Barry Lyndon of. He liked novels without a hero because yeah. there's no one to root for, which we're a little more used to that now, particularly in the golden age of TV and difficult men like Don Draper and Walter White that aren't really good people. Sure. But at the time that, that Thacker was writing, to have no heroes was a crazy thing. So let's go top five movies without a hero, you know, that your main character is an anti-hero. And I don't mean anti-hero like Han Solo, anti-hero like Barry Lyndon. As yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You are watching a horrible person. <laughs> yeah, because a lot of uh, the, stuff. if you just Google movie anti-heroes, you'll get like John Wick yeah. and stuff like that. I don't know if John Wick yeah. is an anti-hero. He's obviously not a good oh. person, but in the context of the movie, you're rooting. He He's is a hero. the hero. And this is suddenly you brought this up. I was prepared for a movie, top movies with anti-heroes, not movies with no heroes yeah. at all. So I'm gonna. I'm going to take The Godfather off my top spot because you could argue that there are some good people, K in particular. I, I, I actually think Godfather's a good answer because at least all the main characters are bad. <laughs> but in The Godfather, the first one in particular, it's such a great movie, but it, yeah. because it's so hermetically sealed in this world of the mob, Michael is a hero because they are, the Corleone family is better than the other families. <laughs> So it, it because and the only copy is crooked and you know it, yeah. anyway. But I'll reshuffle slightly. So this okay. means I'm going to I, I put Basically, this as an movies alternate. to make you feel bad about humanity. <laughs> okay, this that's easy enough. I'm going to then yeah. take off Unforgiven. Although Unforgiven is in the bleak. same. It's pretty bleak. But what's great about Unforgiven is it's 130 minutes long, and the first 120 minutes Eastwood's like. Violence is the worst. I shouldn't have killed all those people. I really wish it's bad for you. It's bad for your soul. It doesn't solve any problems. And then in the last 10 minutes, he's presented with a problem. And he's, I'm going to solve it with violence. <laughs> and I know how, because I've been doing it for a million years. And it does become an exciting shit. It's not yeah. a... It, Unlike in Barry Lyndon, where the, the final duel is upsetting, it's not really satisfying, even though he's done no. this kind of... Sati- this sort of noble thing the ending of unforgiven is very satisfying in a way that that disregards what they have been saying yeah. the entire earlier part of the movie so i'm going to get rid of that number five then will be election which you wouldn't think on this yeah. list but is that's, perfect for this list that's a great i i would not have thought of that but that is a great it's a great movie and it's a great great call because yeah because everybody is the worst but but matthew Broderick is, is also the worst, the worst. correct correct <laughs> yeah I at number four then we'll do American Psycho. It it's I'd have to rewatch it. I think maybe one of the girl, but no, the girlfriends are vapid and yeah. dumb. So I think yeah. everybody is pretty terrible. No, that's, you. I think I would argue that American Psycho is a lot of is does to the eighties what right this does, does to the eighteen seventeen eighties. At number three is Barry Lyndon, which we talked about at some at some. Number two will be There Will Be Blood. I don't really know who you're supposed to be rooting for yeah. when it comes yeah, to There I Will th- Be Blood. I thought that might be your number one. 
that's because it's not Taxi Driver, which is number one. Yeah. Speaking yeah. of Scorsese, who are we really going for? Nobody. I guess maybe Jodie Foster, but... I if Jodie Foster is fine. Yeah, but... Yeah. Uh, okay. All right. Then this but I, is... I, it's taxis. It's still, it does make you feel bad about humanity, so <laughs> I think it checks the box. Sure. All right. I like it. Well, everyone should check out all five of those movies. Watch Barry Lyndon if you want, or just watch 2001. <laughs> Of course, most people complain about sitting through 2001. Right? So I don't know if it's I not any shorter. It's not. It's, I would argue, slower than this actually. Oh, yeah. Anyway. Okay. But you should watch uh, 2001. Yeah. It's great. Yes. Uh, so let us know if you've got any comments of your own at watchingtherightmovies at gmail.com. Subscribe, listen to us on whatever, wherever you get your podcast. We'll see you next week. See you, Benny.